This is Airing Pain, a programme brought to you by Pain Concern, the UK charity providing information and support for those of us living with pain and for healthcare professionals. I'm Paul Evans, and this edition has been supported by Friends of Pain Concern. Anxiety of athletes coming up to an event, they will quite often have something that comes out of the blue and you either see it every single time there's a big race coming up that they will present in the physio room with an injury which when you look at it there isn't really anything there. If Mr Jones with chronic pain is sitting in front of the television watching the Olympics what's happening in their brain when they're processing information about people running around? From couch potato to Olympic athletes we all have brains and we all have bodies but they don't always talk nicely to each other. Alison Rose is a physiotherapist who works at CSPC Therapy Clinic in Leeds, whose patient list covers the whole gamut of ability, from elite athletes, including gold medal Olympians Kelly Holmes, Jessica Ennis and the Brownlee brothers, through to the weekend warriors and, yes, couch potatoes. For me, no one should live with pain, and I think it comes out of the fact that, you know, we've got one body for life, and I think... The problems are intriguing because they usually have got a really complex nature to them and obviously the effect on the person is really great. And for me, physio is about fitting together a puzzle and I think quite often you know, pain manifests in a certain way but it actually potentially might be the accumulation of any of the little injuries that we've had since, you know, since the day we were born right up until the point where the body just says, actually, no, I can't do this anymore and... You know, and for me, it's finding the, the keys to unlock that and help the person have a, a more functional life. So how do you unravel all those little things? They may be little things that have gone on. Getting a really good subjective history is super important. So, you know, finding out what the pain means for the person and what effect it's having on their life. Because sometimes, you know, it's that thing between I have got a bad back, but actually it means I can't play with my children. So there's a really important reason to get rid of the reason why they have back pain so they can play with their children like I said it's taken a really good subjective history so going right back to the point where you know have you had falls off a bike and head injuries and even you know having teeth pulled out can make a difference to how muscles sit around your neck I do a full body assessment and just tie in symptoms with function and how the person moves and sometimes you know you can get a problem in a certain area but it can be because there's a very large dysfunction somewhere else so for example you might have back pain because your hip and your foot on one side doesn't work very well therefore it affects the way you move therefore you get back pain because that's the area that takes the strain anxiety of athletes coming up to an event they will quite often have something that comes out of the blue and you either see it every single time there's a big race coming up that they will present in the physio room with an injury which when you look at it there isn't really anything there and then when you get to know the athlete you realize that this is the pattern that they have is that they will present for physio just before a big event and I think sometimes it's the anxiety around an event that it just, you know, they are just more sensitive to things and will report things. And I think sometimes it's just that they want to come in and speak to somebody that they trust and just get a little bit of, I guess, confidence from that. But that doesn't mean that the problem doesn't exist. It obviously exists for that person. You wouldn't belittle the fact that they feel that because who's to say that 
one person feels something and somebody else doesn't. And obviously I'm not feeling that person's pain. So, you know, it might be something that I can see. And sometimes it just takes time for the person to realise that actually this is what they do every single time there's a big race coming up is that they will present as something. So you have to address the psychological side of pain as well. Yeah, it really does come into it because pain is something that is it can prevent you from doing things that you want to do and it can affect how you see yourself and it can affect you know, your perception, it can affect your social life, it can affect how you interact with other people. And all of those things will tie in with how this pain affects you. That's working with elite athletes. But what about other people with chronic pain conditions who come and see you? Obviously those with chronic pain, their end-stage rehab won't be as high a level, but I would look at them in exactly the same way I would examine them in exactly the same way, the same thing with their subjective history. It is finding out what that pain means for them. But if their aim to perform is to be able to get up and down the stairs and be able to take their children to school or go about their business, for me, it's totally the same. And I wouldn't change the way I treat those people. I might be more gentle on those with chronic pain than I would be on an athlete in my treatment. But still, I would be looking to get to the bottom of that or get to the point where actually you know you're moving really well now I know you're still a little bit sore but actually it's fine and you you know you will not hurt yourself moving forward so just kind of get on and go about your business and it is really the same puzzle that I'm putting together. What sort of conditions do you see? I guess one of the best examples I've got was a lady who'd had headaches for 40 years and she she was on a lot of strong medication Actually, the reason that she had that pain was because the bottom of her back wasn't moving very well and she'd fallen on a coccyx. And there's a connection, obviously, through your spine, from the bottom of your spine right up to your head and your neck. So in getting the lower back to move better, that allowed us to settle down everything all the way up. So we managed to get rid of the headaches that she'd had for 40 years on a daily basis and managed to get her down from the carrier bag full of painkillers that she was having to take to, you know, she might take one every so often, but it's in a blue moon now. Probably the most difficult areas to treat are pelvic pain, headaches, head pains, neck pains, neural type of symptoms. And then quite often, you know, we will see people that if they've had surgery, for example, you may end up, because obviously the scar tissue tightens and there are changes that happen because of a surgery which has been necessary you know quite often just releasing the soft tissue around there enables the person to move better which takes the stress off the area you know there usually is a weak area that is under strain because of something which if you can change that it just allows everything to settle and it life, life becomes more manageable do you deal with people with fibromyalgia yes so again i think quite often those have your nervous system can get highly sensitized and i think you can really tie in with that but Quite often, those types of people have got a highly sensitised nervous system because they might have had, I don't know, either head injuries or teeth pulled out or they've had big traumas at car crashes. And if you think about the things that we layer on through life, from when you're small to the falls out of trees and the falls off a bike, right the way through to car crashes or slips down the stairs, all of these things, they all sit in your system And I think your brain isn't really good at differentiating between problems. Then sometimes it is just unpicking those. So what you're saying is that somebody's body, my body, is the product of, say, 62 years' worth of trauma, however light that might be. You know, our bodies are amazing at adapting. They will adapt and will adapt because we have to get around in life. 
And obviously, years ago, you had to be able to move to survive. And we will find a way to move in a pain-free way. And sometimes you sit down, even, you know, falling over will jangle your nervous system around and just upset it. And, you know, if you do one or two of those too many, things do add up. But I think, you know, our bodies are incredible things and they will adapt and adapt and adapt. And I think there does become a day where, whether it's an emotional stressor that comes in or another physical stressor or you become ill and your systems get overloaded, then actually your body just goes, whoa, this is enough. You know, I need to actually find someone that can help me sort this out. And I think that is where we would come in, that, you know, sometimes it is, it's just unpicking the layers and layers that people have added on through their lives. We are the house that Jack built, the extension on the extension on the extension on the extension. Exactly. And, you know, I tell people that they're like onions and sometimes you are undoing all of those layers and just helping them to move and functioning better everything whether it's just tissues that you're rolling through you know if you are stressing those if you're not moving very well and your body will cope to a certain point but then we'll start to complain now what i hadn't considered as suitable for manipulation were the bones in the head alison rose again i think there's a myth that the bones in your skull will get fused as you grow up and that your head is like a solid bowling ball they're actually it's not fused it's a system of flat bones that fit together a bit like double-sided tongue and groove. And they can, with various knocks, end up being slightly twisted. And if you had a solid bowling ball as a head, if you did fall over and hit your head, it potentially could crack. So this system is in place so that you get mobility there. But it is possible to treat those bones, you know, if you think about your head not being you know, sitting quite straight on the top of your neck, your body will have to adjust so that your eyes are actually straight in space because that's what your body wants it to have, your eyes straight so you can see properly. But other things underneath that might have to adapt. But I've had people in who have had, they've presented with double-sided shoulder pain six months after they've had various teeth pulled and braces and blocks put in. And actually that's been because everything around their head head has been pulled out so it's put a lot of stress on the nerves coming down into the shoulders but having treated those areas it's got rid of the shoulder pain that they've had but sometimes the bits that have been missed are actually the fact that your viscera is the thing that isn't moving and we see that so often and again I think with chronic pain sometimes obviously if you're taking lots of pain medication it will obviously overload your liver and it can therefore then make your liver not move very well, which can then make your ribcage not move very well. But the neural interconnections, again, will hypersensitize your system. That's where a lot of the chronic things come in. Because again, if you've had a car crash or a fall on your bum or, I don't know, you've had I don't know, cesarean or surgeries or you know, sometimes it, it is the other effects. Your organs should move on the inside. They have something called motility, which is how they move when they function, but also they do need to move inside you so that, for example, your liver needs to be able to rotate within your rib cage, and it needs to be able to flex forward and bend backwards to give you those movements that obviously can be on the outside. And we do see a lot of people who potentially might have had, again, is usually related to a trauma, but sometimes if they've had a lot of medication because they've been ill, that things do get overloaded or they stop moving very well so if you can picture a tin of beans which you shake up obviously the tin of beans the outside will still look the same but the inside will be shaken up 
So if your organs aren't moving very well on the inside, that will have an effect on the outside and how your body will be able to move, which can then have a, a knock-on effect on chronic pain. I don't understand. I mean, I would have thought my internal organs are in the place where they should be, and that is that. So how do they move? Okay, so organs can become less mobile within your system in a variety of different ways. So if, for example, you fall over onto your bottom or you're in a car crash, your body will move, but within you, your organs will move back and forth within your skeleton. The other thing is that because, obviously, your organs are innervated by nerves, if your whole nervous system, in particular your upper back, which is related to your sympathetic nervous system and your fight or flight, that can have an effect on the blood supply to your organs in the same way it would if you go into fight or flight because you're feeling anxious or you're being chased by somebody. So if that's happening in the long term, so it can be a mixture of potentially traumas, it can be medication overloading organs, which again just stops it functioning very well. Or like I said, if your whole nervous system is really driven and it's really an overdrive it can in itself have an effect on causing these organs to just not move as well and go into what we would call viscerospasm. So as a physiotherapist what do you do to work on that? You learn how to assess how an organ feels and there are different ways of being able to mobilize and they're really really gentle techniques but they do help the organs to move better within your system, which will then allow you to move better as an entity or it will allow the organs to function better, which again can have a big effect. You know, it just helps to get rid of toxins. So again, I've had patients in who just feel that they're toxic. And when you start getting their whole system moving, and obviously, you know, your liver not moving very well, for example, will have an effect on your diaphragm, which will have an effect on your breathing, which then will have an effect on your thorax and anxiety. And so everything, again, to me, is all tied in. You know, you can treat one area of the body and it will have a marked effect on another. For somebody with a long-term pain condition, what advice would you give about seeking out a physiotherapist or any other practitioner? I think in any profession, there are people that are good at what they do. I think it's really important to not just go to one person and think well actually physio didn't work for me maybe that wasn't the right physio for you you should be starting to see a difference within the first two or three sessions and starting to feel that things are changing I think it's really important to have a physio that will actually check everything and actually not just look at the bit that's sore because like I said quite often the bit that's sore or where the pain's coming from may be because of a dysfunction somewhere else and it's secondary to the other dysfunction so I think it is really important that somebody is looking at you really, really holistically. Sometimes it does take two or three times to find the right person. And one of the things I treat is chronic groin and pelvis pain. And people will travel from all over the UK because actually I think we do look at that in a really holistic way. And we do get people better from that. But, you know, these again are people who've seen many other physios and maybe it just hasn't been the right approach for them. So for somebody who's been in consultations with Dr. Google or Dr. Yahoo, whoever, is there something they should look out for as a stamp of approval, if you like, for a physiotherapist? You need somebody who is really experienced and has a really wide skill base. And also somebody who recognises that actually this is where my limits are. 
and actually I do need to ask for help from potentially a doctor, the pain clinic, another practitioner. We obviously don't have all the answers all the time, but actually having a really good network of people around you that if you do need to refer on because there are certain things that we can't do or we realise that actually this isn't within my skill set, I think it's really important to have that network as well. Physiotherapist Alison Rose. I just need to remind you that whilst we in Pain Concern believe the information and opinions on airing pain are accurate and sound based on the best judgments available, you should always consult your health professional on any matter relating to your health and well-being. He or she is the only person who knows you and your circumstances and therefore the appropriate action to take on your behalf. Now, Alison Rose talked about the anxiety athletes might feel coming up to an important event and how they might present with an injury which, on examination, is just not there. Of course, pain linked with anxiety or other emotions is not unique to elite athletes. Anne Taylor is Professor in Medical Education at Cardiff University's School of Medicine. In her doctoral research, she looked at the way people with chronic pain perceived non-pain-related information. So we put them in the scanner, showed them a series of pain words and also showed them pictures of activities of daily living and compared with healthy controls that were matched, it showed that they actually used their fear circuitry to process that information. So they, despite using a self-assessed questionnaire... They said they were not fearful of movement. In fact, when it came to looking at how their brain functioned when they saw these words or saw these pictures, they were actually fear-conditioned. So they subconsciously possibly felt process those pain words and those activities of daily living very much using fear circuitry. So these people were very complex people living with chronic pain. So they were on high opioid use. They had lots of mood and physical functioning problems. They scored very highly on their pain despite the large doses of opioid. I was very interested in, you know, if Mr Jones with chronic pain is sitting in front of the television watching the Olympics, what is happening subconsciously or what's happening in their brain when they're processing information about people running around. So it kind of suggests that any movement or any pain words that you show people with chronic pain, they will process that through fear circuitry. So it's a potential stressor and it's something that subconsciously, probably or subliminally, they're scared of. So it has ramifications for things like self-management. How do you disentangle people's fear conditioning with getting the right messages out there? So go on and how do you? It's about having constructive conversations with people living with chronic pain. So rather than relying on self-assessed questionnaires, which they might be wanting to respond to to please you, is actually having conversations about what worries you about your pain, what do you find is difficult to manage with your pain, how do you view me telling you you need to go and see a physiotherapist or you need to go up to the gym and trying to get them to unpick that. Because I'm sure if they think about it enough, they will actually start thinking about triggers that trigger 
this response to pain words or activities? The first person within the health profession you will see about your pain is the GP. Mm -hmm. They don't have time to do that sort of thing, do they? Traditionally, no. But a lot of these people that they see with chronic pain, they've had their chronic pain a long time before they go and see the GP. And I think it's about, you know, if you first came to see me as a GP, which I'm not, I'm an academic educationalist, but it's about saying, look, you've had your pain for a long time. We're not going to solve this overnight. So we're going to have regular 10-minute slots so we can start unpicking your pain and picking how you feel about your pain and then looking at the positives, looking at what you want to achieve and looking at how we can take steps to achieve that. It's about thinking rationally about how you can use those 10-minute slots in an innovative way. Well, as if on cue, the results of four years' research and development of Pain Concerns Navigator tool is an innovative way to facilitate better conversations between doctors and patients and therefore better outcomes, and still within that 10-minute time frame. Full details, download links and supporting videos are on Pain Concerns' website, which is painconcern.org.uk. And Taylor again. We talk about the biopsychosocial approach to pain, but we just ignore the social bit. And I've been doing a lot of engagement activities across Wales to see what people with chronic pain, living with chronic pain, want from pain services. And a lot of it is about social support. And, you know, I think we should do a lot more in social prescribing and not just rely on, you know, there's the GP and then there's the pain services. You know, there's the whole movement around men's sheds now, which is is coming forward. Things like support groups. They were wanted sessions in the GPs so somebody could tell them why they have pain, what it means, how they could help or support to look after the wife who's got dementia so they can actually go and do something. The people that were responding to our workshops were very much about, you know, it's the social support we want and they're doing some work in Llanelli and Ely around time banking and there's a not-for-profit organisation called SPICE and they will come in and they will set up time banking. So if I was to come and help you with your allotment you would do the raised beds because you've got back pain and then I would share the allotment produce or I would go and help Mrs Jones with some activities of daily living because she's got fibromyalgia and as a result I would get credit so I could go and use the local gym so we're back to you know medieval time and bartering but it's been shown to work very well I think that's fantastic but you know from my history I have fibromyalgia and I can remember my neighbours clubbing together to chop my tree down, this, that, the other. But I felt incredible guilt that they were doing this. But if I could have offered them something back, that would have been fantastic. Mm. And I think that's it. It's, it's about social support. So you were no longer a victim. You're a valued member of the community. And that's what SPICE and time banking and all this social prescribing is about. You know, there was one story about a man who had low back pain and was very limited. And he got support from a family with his garden. And it turned out he was a a war historian and he was a teacher. And so he would sit with the kids in school, telling them all about the war. And so he could give back to the community by teaching in a school voluntarily about the information he gleaned about World War II. I mean, the areas you mentioned, time banking and social prescribing, 
in both those places, there are high-ish levels of deprivation. Mm. Is that why these areas have been picked? Yes. You know, you go up to the Welsh Valleys and you've got five or six generations of people who've never worked. So their great-great-great-great-grandfather worked in the mines and nobody's worked ever since. And they have low resilience, they have low self-esteem. And so it's about getting activity socially to enhance the community and to support the community so they can support these people to actually gain more self-esteem. Because there's no point sending these people with massive social problems, low mood, low function, very complex, abusive relationships into pain clinics or pain management services. They're not social workers. And maybe there needs to be a step where we support them in the community, we help them with their resources, we help them become more proud of themselves and and have more self-esteem so that they can optimise who they are so that when they go into pain services, they're already primed to make the most of pain services. Because if you have a horrible life and you have pain... I would blame my pain for my horrible life. I wouldn't want to say my horrible life is due to me and I need to do something. It's, I would prefer to say my horrible life is to, due to the fact that I've got pain. You're a victim. I'm a victim. So if you take my pain away, that means my horrible life is my responsibility and I'm not ready to accept that. So it's about how can the community enable people to accept that Maybe their horrible lives are partly due to them and to give them some skills and some attributes and some confidence to make some difference. And then when you start making some difference, then they might be ready to relinquish their pain. That's Professor Anne Taylor of Cardiff University's Medical School. Don't forget that you can download all editions of Airing Pain from Pain Concerns website. Once again, it's painconcern.org.uk. And there you'll also find a wealth of material and information about living with and managing chronic pain, including our newly developed Navigator tool. Now, we'll be returning to the subject of social prescribing in a future edition of Airing Pain. But to reinforce what Anne Taylor was saying, I just want to leave you with the snippets of a conversation I had with Director of the Centre for Pain Research at Leeds Beckett University, Professor Mark Johnson. In the healthcare professional setting, especially in the medical profession, I don't think we give anywhere near enough focus to the social components of pain. You know, we tend to focus on the biomedical initially and then the psychological perhaps, but actually it's the social cueing that goes on, I think, is really quite critical as well. Um, and I think what the challenge is for healthcare in general and, and healthcare service delivery is how we manage to integrate those sorts of findings into the way we deliver our health care. For example, patients who, who, who have cancer, they often seek complementary therapies, for example, and they like to experience those complementary therapies in, in nice settings. They don't want to be in, you know, a, a bit like our laboratory, a white-walled clinical environment. There's no plants in here, there's no photographs on the wall and there's no piped music and there's no piped music absolutely absolutely and and the hospice settings have, have really taken that on board i mean they're, they're great settings to be in and around and i do wonder whether those sorts of settings would be more amenable again in some of our, our hospital departments 
but I am aware that one, one or two GP uh, practices are starting to introduce little things like gymnasiums and in their settings, just little things patients can do while they're waiting to see the GP. And I think that is absolutely the way forward because you can quite quickly assume a sick role by just entering into some of the hospital settings. I was in a waiting room not so long back in a hospital and I thought, gosh, I feel, I feel unwell just waiting. And I wasn't a patient, <laughs> I was a visitor. So I think there's a lot to be done on, on, on that side of things. I was in St. Gemma's Hospice yesterday and there's an atmosphere of it being like a spa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm a great believer of, 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 of those sorts of environments for our chronic pain patients in particular. I think we unfortunately probably over medicalize some of our chronic pain conditions. Not all of them. You know, if you've got a disease driving the condition, an ongoing disease, that does need attention. But we are well aware now that some of the chronic pain syndromes. They certainly do not have pathology in the, in, in the peripheral tissue that in, originally started the pain. It's the pathology, if, if we want to call it that's migrated to the central nervous system. If we continue searching for the pathology, we ain't going to find it. So there needs to be a complete sort of shift in the way that patients like that are managed. And I think that's going to be the paradigm shift in care going forward.